You are listening to Russia on the Record, a podcast from the Moscow Times. President Vladimir Putin announced on December 8th that he will run for a fifth term in the 2024 presidential election next March. The 71-year-old Russian leader has been in power since 2000. He's expected to run virtual and opposed following the adoption of wartime censorship and the crushing of the liberal opposition and independent press. This will be the first Russian presidential election since the war in Ukraine and a post-Cold War collapse in relations with the West. We spoke to historian Nina Khrushcheva, a great-granddaughter of Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, about the upcoming elections, Putin's presidential campaign since 2000, and how his attitude toward the West has changed throughout his rule. What was Putin's attitude towards the United States and Western countries during his first election campaign in the year 2000? Uh, what was Russian foreign policy based on back then? Well, we remember that Putin announced his presidency at the university, in St. Petersburg at the university. So it was very internationalist oriented. It was quite cosmopolitan. It was educated. At the time, we all remember that his main arguments is that NATO is not a threat. Russia is a European country. And in fact, why wouldn't Russia be, I mean, it's slightly later, but why would Russia be part of NATO? Also, with that campaign, he was arguing for all sorts of freedoms. It will be part of, you know, Russia cannot develop without freedom of expression, freedom of democracy, and whatnot. And uh, as many witnesses to that campaign, journalists were saying that, in fact, when Putin was asked to become president, to sort of step in into Yeltsin's shoes, he didn't plan it, or he was not told it's going to be forever. And he actually was going to, hoping to become the head of Gazprom. It was all about the money. And he was actually very much business oriented. He would, some journalists remember that he could cite numbers of how much percentage of which foreign companies or which domestic companies the oligarchs would have. So he wanted to be a business person. That was his Leningrad from the backwater of the city of Leningrad dream. He was a lower middle class, working class. So that's what he wanted to be. And it's especially just coming out of KGB. But as they say, the fate had it differently and the fate brought him to the heights that he never thought he would come to. And ultimately power, I mean, money, the potentially to have money in Russia is indistinguishable from having power. And that's when Putin's attitude began to change. I mean, slowly, 2004, 2008, 2012, and 2018. So all of this was basically connecting the desire for wealth with the impossibility to have that wealth without sitting on top of the Kremlin. So his attitude towards West started to change in early 2000s, in 2004, 2008. Oh, I think, I mean, in 2004, when, as they kept saying, you may remember, at least heard, there was a Yeltsin argument that Russia was rising from its knees. And of course, that was just, you know, in, in Yeltsin times, it was just a figure of speech more than anything. But although, unfortunately, once you sit on top of the Kremlin, it takes only a few years for you to become a despot. It's just 
you know, it's a, basically that position doesn't come without that necessity. I think in 2004, Putin was still quite westernized. In fact, I think he left in 2008 and he was already not that green Putin that came in thinking that just few million, few billion and he will be out of it. But even in 2008, when he left, it was still sort of the Western formula is that, okay, we have a constitution, there are two terms. He didn't go far enough because he couldn't. I mean, what what would have happened if he did, he thought, uh, being a KGB man and very suspicious. But he was still sort of playing, supposedly, somewhat by the Western rules. But he's a KGB man. He's suspicious. He, NATO by then, expanded. And despite all the promises and all the conversations and all the predictions that it shouldn't have been done, and he is warning that don't do it. So as a KGB man, he's also suspicious of the West. I mean, he's a hero of you. Yuri Andropov. Yuri Andropov is anything. He would be the last person to trust the West. So his attitude started to change in the first eight years. And by 2012, it was a given that the West that Putin thought he was going to deal with in 2000, and especially after September 11th, 2001, when he was embracing and helping, he thought, and uh, being thoroughly accommodating, so by 2012, that kind of dream of the West was gone, especially was gone when he already left the Kremlin in 2008 when the financial collapse happened. In fact, I do know that he was talking about, he's like, well, that's the West. We thought they were great. And look at this. And they collapsed the world. So there are many kind of, there are many instances that helped that anti-Western, very suspicious attitude. And not even the last one was... Dick Cheney, by the way, kind of the great beacon of American undemocracy, sort of the, the black flower, the black orchid, the oxymoron of democratic development. When Dick Cheney, I think, I forgot which country, I think he went to one of the Baltic countries, maybe Lithuania, I don't remember exactly. And he spoke there in 2006, and he was talking about how Putin is not Democrat and, you know, how we, are going to, we America is going to, and Putin's like, I'm sorry, Really? And you were telling me that I'm not a Democrat. And I think that attitude sort of from 2006, 2008 on started to change. And by 2012, he was very firm in his suspicion. And after 2013, the Maidan and 2014, the annexation of Crimea, there was no going back at all. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, Putin is from KGB, he's a child of the Cold War, and he was very nostalgic on the Soviet Union and uh, like the power, the influence of the Soviet Union. How much did anti-Western rhetoric of uh, the end of 2000s end evoking in feelings of resentment over the loss of the Cold War play a role in Putin's domestic popularity? How much uh, this sentiment was represented among the Russians? It's interesting because because Putin is the child of the Cold War, but the late Cold War. He's actually, he was born, what was that, 52, right? So he was born a year before Stalin died. So he grew up during the thaw. He grew up during Khrushchev's thaw. So it's, in many ways, his um, Cold War nostalgia should have been, could have been informed by the thaw. But instead, it was informed by Brezhnev, by the era of stagnation, when the Soviet system was nearly collapsing, but had a sense of some sort of the stagnant stability. And that's something that he chose to 
replicate in some way. And that's what he sold to the Russians. It's not necessarily the nostalgia for the Cold War that he sold. He sold that the golden stagnation. And that is kind of interesting because I'm younger than Putin, but I, and I grew up during, I didn't really grow up in, I mean, Khrushchev was already ousted when I was born and growing up, but I remember how stagnating that was. And it wasn't golden at all. And somehow they just chose to replicate that mythological nostalgia, which, by the way, and I already mentioned Andropov, and you really cannot talk about Putin without talking about Andropov, who was a KGB head since 67. And then he became the head of the Soviet Union for a very brief period of time because he was sick in uh, 82 when, when Brezhnev died. So that was Putin's kind of this merger of... Uh, mythological stability of stagnation and the the tough hand of Andropov. Because Andropov, while he was a KGB head, his one order of business was very important. He was creating mythology, the cultural mythology of the greatness of the special forces, the special forces, I mean, the security forces, the KGB, the clandestine operatives and all this. And we know that Putin's creation of his own mythology of himself began when he watched film that was done under Andropov's order, one of many films, The Shield and the Sword. I mean, all these films that glorifying all sorts of security forces. And so that's what Putin was selling to people, that I'm going to bring you that stability. I'm going to bring you that, but you're going to be living better. You're going to have your cappuccino. You don't have to stand in line for you know, whatever, a piece of bread, but it's going to be so you would have stability and greatness as you had in the Soviet Union, but you also have, you will have products. And he was very lucky. I mean, actually, I have to say he's probably one of the luckiest leaders I've ever experienced in life. I mean, people were saying that Barack Obama was that lucky. He was lucky, but not the level of Putin because luck cannot last for 24 years. And yet it it, it has, it does it continues to. So he was very lucky with oil prices. And the oil prices, of course, helped him to create that mythological kind of this new version of Putinist Russia that is capitalist and collectivist, sort of, so to speak, all at once. And of course, that also helped that in the 90s, this great like UCOS, like, you know, all the oil, the oil and gas businesses were built in the 90s, in fact. I mean, Putin just, just took them and used for, used for the state. But nevertheless, he was able to apply it in the proper way to create this new kind of idea that now Russia really is up from its knees. We're respected. We are taken into consideration. And of course, the next step, you know, for the Russians is that Respect comes with fear. So first it was respect, and then ultimately that started building into fear. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Even if now the fear is more important than respect. In fact, the only way they respect it is because they fear us. If we are coming back to Putin's presidential campaigns, well, we can say that traditionally he does not take part in debates or or he does not uh, film campaign videos. What do his election campaign look like? Russia never had elections. I mean, let's be honest about it. In 91, Yeltsin became president because the Soviet Union collapsed. So that's not election. 96, it was completely made up because his popularity was very little. But as his supporters, including people that we 
lot is great Democrats today, and I'm not arguing that they were Democrats, but let's say they were Soviet Democrats. In this sense, Soviet or Russian for that matter, they still think that their word matter than more than, than anybody's. Yegor Gaidar himself was telling me, he's a great Russian reformer, he was telling me that we had, and I said, look, this is ridiculous in 96, and what are you talking about? And he said, no, 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 we really had to elect Yeltsin, otherwise communists would have come back. So, you know, it's always an ideological reason as to why Democrats or non-Democrats would argue that that particular leader has to be essentially without a competition. So 96 was not an election. 2000 was not an election. I mean, of course, they were other people running, but Yeltsin said, well, that's the man that I'm going to, you know, you're going to all going to elect because this is the man that I chose, which is, by the way, a lot of questions. I mean, we know why, but that's the disaster that came out of Yeltsin because there were other people that could may not have turned. I mean, history doesn't know conditional tenses. We don't know, but may not have turned into this, not being the little KGB major who out of kind of going into retirement received an honorary rank of, of um, lieutenant colonel. So, you know, that's the low rank with a low height, with a low whatever, everything, uh, gives you this kind of a Napoleonic dictatorial formula. So Russia never had elections. 2004 could have been because Putin was wildly popular. But as David Remnick once put it, he said he stole the elections because he just couldn't help himself. In 2004, he was, I think it was 60. So he came in in 2000. The elections were in March late March, it was 50-something percent. So they probably rigged it a bit, or maybe not even. And he was kind of barely scraped it, so to speak. Then in 2004, it was 60-something. I mean, they clearly, I don't know, I'm not going to say that they did because I, I don't have evidence, but people who were observers were saying it wasn't necessarily 100% fair, but it was legitimate and it was 60-something percent. So they decided not to even paint the numbers, as they say. They may have stuffed the bulletins, but, but they didn't really paint the numbers. So then the next election, of course, so that was Medvedev, doesn't matter. 2012 was already painted. It was already 70-something. And of course, 18 was beyond. So it was, in a sense, campaigns were not campaigns. Campaigns were to show a certain level of legitimacy. Although, of course, everything beats... I mean, today beats everything else because today we even officially told that we don't need that elections, that there is no, that campaign is not necessary. Putin is going to be elected, but because it's a constitution and you have to have some other candidates, otherwise it's unconstitutional as if they care. But that's what's so interesting about sort of Russian political systems that as despotic and dictatorial and uh, Genghis Khan type it is, it also has this Western I mean, it's very ritualistic, but yet it has this necessity for protocols that become ritualistic. Uh, so, of course, if Putin is the, the candidate at all times, why would he have debates? It's below the five so foot seven KGB major to be on stage with other people. He declares his statements. He doesn't need to debate them. I mean, and who is in this? And probably the only person... Originally, he could have done it with Yavlinsky, 
probably. Maybe Zyuganev. You know, all these people from the, like, the leftovers from the old good days when there was still at least a semblance of politics. But now it's beneath the great man. I mean, of course he's not going to debate. And this time he's certainly not going to debate. They can debate all they want. I mean, it's not the same, but Donald Trump also doesn't participate in, in debates now in the Republican Party. He may get there, but not while all these little people are just sort of figuring out little things. So that's the price of a kind of dictatorial type ruler. Yeah, you say that Russia never had elections uh, and Putin doesn't need to participate in debates. Uh, at the same time, like different people worked with Putin on his presidential campaign. Uh, in 2000, it was Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, then it was the Duma speaker, Vyacheslav Volodin. Then Kremlin domestic policy chief, Sergei Kiryenko in 2018. How did they influence Putin's election campaign? And which campaign do you remember the most, which seemed the most remarkable for you? I don't find Russian politics that remarkable because I actually find it quite predictable in, in many ways. And especially what happened after February 2024 is like, okay, well, yeah, Russia was doing okay. It was kind of being global and it's like, oh, you know, it's really boring. Let's just go do a war and let's become isolationist because we are a unique civilization. So going back to the arguments of this debates between the Slavophiles and Westernizers, which I thought after... 1991 would not even be possible because it's just such a leftover of the past, but how wrong we all were. Yes, of course, different people worked in different campaigns. I mean, there was a great film, I forgot the name of it, by Vitaly Mansky on the elections of, of Putin in 2000, when Yeltsin retired and gave it to Putin. And in March, and, you know, everybody was participating and there's all these kind of liberals that were part of that campaign. I'm sure they, you know, Surkov is a good example, Vyacheslav Surkov, who was sort of a Putin brain for quite a bit of time. And he himself said that he's designer of today politics, which doesn't have any room for him anymore, which is kind of interesting because it just went so probably so far right that, and I mean right in the normal way, not in the Russian way, when the right is against the communists, so far right that he himself doesn't even recognize this kind of nationalistic xenophobic kind of version of Russia helped create. So I'm sure they influenced, but I, I'm pretty certain that there is a, it's a Putin design. It doesn't have to be all details of Putin design, but his advisors know what he wants. They feed him certain information that he likes. They put together information that he likes. They listen to what he has to say. I don't know how much he talks to them, but I imagine he does. And so he has ideas of, he's told, you know, Americans are meddling in our neighborhoods. Like, oh, we are going to show them how to meddle in our neighborhood. And we are going to show them if they want to, if they, if Barack Obama thinks that Russia is a regional power, I'm going to show him what kind of regional power we are. And so that, that kind of a policy being created. And I actually, I mean, I don't know that about Putin for sure, but I've studied quite a bit of how Khrushchev policy was created. And it was kind of similar is that he has ideas and he says, oh, you know, the Americans are this. And, you know, and then advisors run around and do research and come back to him and say, we can do this and we can do that. And he says, fine, let's go this direction. And, you know, then there is U2 incident, May 1st, uh, 1960. And he says, okay, we are going to turn around and do it entirely differently. And of course, Putin is 
much better educated than Khrushchev was. Putin knows the world much better than Khrushchev did. Putin was a worldly creature. He was a KGB creature, which is important, but he was also quite a worldly creature at the beginning. And I think that it, that kind of shows at the beginning that he was much more open to the world. Remember when he said that, um, you know, Russia is a part of European civilization. But ultimately, sitting in the Kremlin, when you're sitting in the Kremlin and being further and further away from the world and further and further away from the people and more and more advisors are kissing your every part of your body, ultimately, you just end up as this. I mean, he's really not that in that vertical of power that he announced, he's really not that original. And advisors are there in Russian politics. Very rarely advisors are there to tell you how to be better. More often than not, advisors are there to confirm all your inconsistencies, all your idiosyncrasies, all your fears, all your great demands for greatness and whatnot. And that's exactly what we've been witnessing over all these campaigns for Putin's, and I don't even want to say elections, but Putin's sort of errors of Putin staying in power. Yeah, you mentioned the epoch of uh, Nikita Khrushchev. And uh, now that Putin is entering a new election race, can Russia's relations with the U.S. be compared to American-Soviet relations during the Cold War, for example, the era of Nikita Khrushchev or Leonid Brezhnev? Well, the era of Nikita Khrushchev, by the way, America had great relationship with the Soviet Union or the other way around. In 59, Khrushchev was the first leader that ever went to the United States. It was there. He was meeting with everybody, speaking to everybody. Then, and that I'm sure Putin, although he did say he doesn't want to see himself in Khrushchev in, in any way, God forbid he could be compared. But uh, in many ways, he kind of following in Khrushchev's footsteps in a sense that, you know, Khrushchev thought in 59 that their relationship couldn't have been better. They were going to go to Paris to sign peace agreements. And they, I mean, the great powers were going to meet in Paris in 1916, May. And then suddenly, oops, uh, the U2, and I already mentioned Gary Francis Powers, all of a sudden, Dwight Eisenhower, the president at the time, is silent. Khrushchev's like, what the hell is going on? I mean, are you kidding me? And Eisenhower's like, I don't know anything. And Khrushchev's like, wait, we have a pilot in the plane. What do you mean you don't know anything? So Khrushchev was sort of begging for apology. Eisenhower said, I'm not apologizing. Goodbye. Khrushchev said, fine, I'm not going to negotiate. He came to Paris, had a scandal and left. So in some ways, it was one of those moments that Putin cites, and not incorrectly, is that, you know, you're kind of being friendly with the West, and then it does this little backer to you, because thinking that you are a nobody and a nothing, and they can do whatever. Because it's interesting, Eisenhower canceled, when the relationship were worse, Eisenhower canceled those flights the U-2 flights. And when the relationship got better, it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess Russians are just going to eat it because, you know, they're not going to go anywhere. So in some ways it does, it is incredibly, it is a great hubris on the side of, of the United States of the West. So then we witnessed the um, Berlin Wall being built in a similar way. Then we witnessed the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, by the way, kind of, you know, obviously once again, 
Khrushchev was trying to say, well, wait a minute, you have all these things in Turkey and Italy and everywhere else, and what about us? And you keep trying to kill Fidel Castro, and you're going to kill Fidel Castro once again, try to kill him by October 1962. We have to do something. So if you actually flip this, all these statements from the United States, which was like, oh, how dare they? They are going to take a Mexican leader. The Soviets are going to take out a Mexican leader. We have to fight for this. And basically, the argument from the United States is always that what the lion can do, the dog cannot. And so both Khrushchev and Putin said, wait a minute, I'm not your dog. So what are you talking about? So in this sense, in terms of politics, the geopolitics, these things are explicable. And in fact, the interesting thing about Khrushchev is that he being a politician and politician in Soviet almost do not go in the same sentence, but he was a political being, let me put it this way. I mean, he survived the Stalin era, the Stalinist attacks and whatnot. So he was a political being. He would see, especially with the Cuban Missile Crisis, he thought that Kennedy was young, that Kennedy wouldn't respond. He was adamant that it was all for parities, not for anything else. And Kennedy decided to raise the stakes and say, well, if you are not going to do it, we're going to start a war. And he said, no, 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 no. I didn't mean war. Never. So he started navigating political situation that was created. And that's how the Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved. And in fact, Khrushchev and Kennedy then were planning to have a great relationship. And that's why I say it's, they were great crises during Khrushchev era. But the relationship, in fact, were very good first with Eisenhower and then was promising to be very good with Kennedy. And he was, in fact, they were promising to be so good that when Kennedy was killed, Khrushchev was going to come to his funeral. And he was, and then they decided not to because it would have been you know, an extra drama that nobody wanted. So in this sense, and Brezhnev too, they were crisis in relationship during um, the Carter administration. But in other ways, things were, so the detente began and all these other things. So they were still, these people, Khrushchev more probably than Brezhnev, but Brezhnev too, they were political beings. They were not KGB beings. And Putin is a KGB being. So if he has a choice, I don't know if he thinks he has a choice, but everybody has a choice. If he has a choice to resolve a crisis politically or be suspicious and push for more crisis because that helps his own KGB agenda, he will choose a KGB agenda. And that's a great difference between Putin and even the Soviet leaders who were not politicians because there was no elections, there was no freedom of kind of choosing them, but who were nonetheless superior in some ways because they were political beings. Yeah, coming back to the election campaign, uh, the only time Putin uh, had a second round was in the year 2000. Uh, well, we mentioned this. And uh, now, which results uh, should we expect? Uh, how strong is uh, the support of Vladimir Putin uh, among Russians? And uh, should we expect high turnout and transparent uh, vote counting? Well, you mentioned Kirienko early on. So Kirienko is in charge of this. He's in charge of all the Sovietization campaigns. So he's already, they already met with the, those who organized it. So their legitimacy, one is a big argument for legitimacy and calmness and um, mass attendance. So mass attendance is important because it brings legitimacy. So if all these people come out to vote, that must be legitimate. So people are going to be bussed in 
no question about it. I mean, or will be told to vote or will be even, which obviously illegal, but, you know, in Russia, what is illegal, would be asked to, I don't know, show prove that they voted, or maybe the voting staff would be then giving information to organizations that so-and-so from that that factory voted. I don't know how they're going to do it, but so it's going to be massive attendance, which will bring legitimacy and calmness because that's Russia is going to the future. And whatever that future is, only Putin knows, but that kind of future that is also its past, it's going to be calm because everybody else is in crisis. But we, despite the fact that we fight the war, look at this, we are just all, you know, all wonderful. It would be interesting to see, in fact, what would be the address since the new year is coming up, because also the, we talk about the Putin transformation during the election announcements and election campaigns, but also his transformation during the New Year's celebrate New Year's speech is also incredibly important. You know, first he went early on in 2000, he went out and he spoke. He's no longer in office warm. He is not speaking from the desk. Uh, he's speaking, there's a snow and Kremlin and all these things. And in fact, originally, even he wanted to stop to go across all across Russia and stop in every time zone and speak from every time zone. In fact, he did this when he came back after Medvedev. He spoke from Chelyabinsk. Kind of the New Year celebration was among the people, so to speak. They were backdrop. And last year, it was also among the people, but they were military people. We don't know exactly whether it's, you know, how many roles and how many uniforms they were changing because they seem to be serving in different ways. So we'll see how it's going to play out this year. I would imagine because the announcement this year was so militaristic, was unlike previous ones, the announcement this was in the Kremlin. You can't really beat that. It was in the Georgievsky Zal and the Georgian Hall. You can't beat this. This is a grand place of grand things that happen in the Kremlin. And the military people in uniform came up very awkwardly, mind you, and said, well, yippee, be with us and whatnot. So that was a message. That was a great message that he's a, the Tsar, Putin the first of a great military empire that is going to be military empire no matter what. So campaigns change. And, and of course, the New Year celebrations also seem um, kind of very appropriate. They are created for certain eras. So watching this transformation, I mean, it, I have to say, for me, it's a little boring because in some ways you almost can predict. You can predict little details, but you can predict that during the first year, the first years, the Kremlin behind Putin was much larger than, than Putin. And then the following years, the Kremlin behind Putin was on the same level as Putin. And then later on, Putin would be all in the screen and the, and the Kremlin would be just the, some sort of a Disneyland behind. So he becomes the more and more Tsarish over the years. And I think this campaign is going to be the same. I would actually, because I travel around Russia a bit, so I see how people think, I would say that if we were honest, which they won't be, probably 50 some percent would honestly vote for Putin. So we would be half of the country, maybe even slightly more. But 
if we look at all the campaigns, there's always sort of a 10 percentage increase over the years. So I would imagine that by now, they I mean, I'm not predicting, I don't know, but I would imagine that by now they would have to do, as they say, paint 82% or 80% just because this is what they've been saying, according to the polls, this is the 82% is the support of Putin among the nations. So having less, it's like, who are those doubters? Let's find them out and just beat them up and hang them on the trees. So I would imagine around then. I mean, if we go full-blown Soviet, and let's remember that this is six years and then another six years if Putin is alive and, you know, Russia still stands and we are still alive because probably he's going to live forever when we won't. So another six years. Then I think next six years is going to be 96% as the Soviets did. So that would be just a given. Of course, the whole, there's one man, the whole United Soviet Union, or now United Russia for that matter. And this is not a pun because that's the name of Putin's party. So I would imagine, but could be 70 something to be polite, although I don't think that they have any reason, any desire to be polite anymore. Uh, But it could get to the 90s also easily. Putin was asked to go to the polls by a military man from Donbass. Among Russians, can we expect a Crimea effect, a boost in popularity caused by Russia saying it has expanded its borders as it did in 2014? Well, I mean, it was a surprise that this war, because this war nobody wanted and nobody expected. And at the beginning, it was a very strong opposition to it. And people went to the street, like 50% or more went to the street. But in a week time, which I didn't even think was possible, but in a week time, it was all gone. Like everybody was canceled, arrested, prosecuted, scared and everything. But then, of course, the West also helped tremendously to create a Crimea fact because the onslaught on every Russian was such that Ultimately, Putin's argument that they're out to get us, that they hate you, that they want to defeat you, it all turned out to be true. I mean, and so, of course, his support. So that's what I've been saying all the time, is that every time Ursula von der Leyen speaks, or Joe Biden speaks, every time it gives another percentage or even more to Putin's popularity. Not popularity, because it doesn't mean that that Putin is popular. But when you are listen, when you're hearing all the time that our strategic goal is to, is Russia's defeat, I'm like, okay, show me a nation that wants to be defeated. Just, you know, think of ballpark. There's no nation, even no matter how wrong it is, no nation wants to be defeated. And so they actually help. I would say that 10%, whatever that number is going to be in March, 10% belongs to the West. If probably, if not more. And in fact, I had my own conversations with a lot of Russians on, on this subject is that, well, we don't like Putin, but like, what else are we going to do? I mean, like, well, they want to hang us all in the trees and they cancel our culture. And once again, this is also incredibly hypocritical on the Russian side because Putin keeps screaming how the West canceled Russian culture. I've never seen so much culture, Russian culture canceled within Russia. I've never seen, you know, you go to, I don't know, places like Permi or even let's not go to Perm. Perm is far, it's still Siberia, but let's even go to Tver, which is a much closer place. It's in between St. Petersburg and Moscow. And you, you have, I don't know, eight museums in, in a city, which is very cultural and ancient and old city. And every single exhibit there is either about an empire, the Russian empire, or about the Soviet Union. So, okay, 
what are you going to do with this? So ultimately, the message is, if they're going to hate us so much, if they want to defeat us, we have to stick together. We're going to rally around the flag. And uh, that certainly helps Putin's argument that every time when a statue of Russian something goes down in Kiev or in Ukraine, when uh, some, you know, a book is being canceled because it's on the Russian subject, every time it adds to Putin's argument. So I would kind of imagine that for defeating Russia, if they really want to defeat Russia that much, they wouldn't really need to have a policy. They don't have to need a policy demolishing Russia and not letting it win is not a policy because you can't win over 11 time zones. They can cite, people cite often, not they, but some people argue, oh, and uh, and uh, Hitler, Germany, Nazi Germany was like, fine. Nazi Germany was a tiny country in Europe. It was occupied. How are you going to occupy 11 time zones? Just, you know, ballpark. It's 11 time zones. It goes from Kaliningrad, Königsberg, from Germany to Kamchatka, which is on the border, ocean border with Japan. Just how do you plan to do this? Yes, it could be the Soviet formula. The Soviet formula is that sanctions and sanctions and sanctions, and ultimately it will collapse like the Soviet Union did fine. But the generation that designs this is not going to live to see that because that's a long process. And if anybody wants Russia defeated or at least neutralized soon, in fact, this policy has made Russia stronger. And we see that and we see it in The Economist, all these articles in The Washington Post. They see Russia stronger because the grand desire to defeat it created politics. It's not even policy. Created politics, which ultimately made for the Russians to have, I call it the Stalingrad effect. You know, when, ever, when the onslaught of efforts to defeat you brings some sort of mobilization, it's not mobilization in terms of soldiers, but it's some mobilization of uh, partially the economy, the industry, and as discombobulated as Russia is, which it is very discombobulated, it actually is capable to function with this formula of discombobulation. And that's what we see. And so I do think that Putin, over 50%, will honestly be for him, and about 20-plus, if not more, they will just paint, which is not really, you know, given the circumstances, uh, writing up extra 20% numbers is really not that much. In every election involving Putin, there was a so-called liberal candidate, a candidate from the liberal bloc, a pro-Western candidate, for example, in uh, on the last elections in 2018, there was Ksenia Sobchak. Should we expect such a candidate this time too? Well, I mean, Ksenia Sobchak was not a liberal candidate. She was a Putin candidate to pretend that there is a liberal candidate. So let's <laughs> let's just be honest about it. No, I mean, Grigory Yevlinsky, the Yablaka Party, is always a liberal candidate. He's been a liberal candidate for 25 million years. In fact, he just met with Putin, which is interesting, and spoke about, Yevlinsky himself spoke about the fact that they were, he and Putin had an honest conversation. I don't know what it means with Putin after 23 years in power, but okay, let's just give Yevlinsky the benefit of the doubt and assume that they did have an honest an honest conversation. So he wants to be a candidate, that candidate, if there are 10 million signatures for his candidacy, which of course is not going to happen. And clearly the Kremlin would allow that to happen. So he could be that candidate, not that it will do any difference. There will be some candidates, but of course, 
it really doesn't matter. I mean, this time in 2018, there was still, I don't know if you remember, Umne Golosavanya, the, the smart voting that Alexei Navalny put forward when there would be all these candidates voting just against Putin. I mean, a lot of um, voters would be voting against Putin. And so then at certain times in certain places, the Liberal Democratic Party, Zhirinovsky Party made it well, or the Communist Party would make well. So the idea was to take away votes from Putin, not that would do any difference. But even that is not an option today. I mean, there is no such thing as, I mean, everybody's in prison. Everybody who has an independent thought is already, you know, even if they're not in prison, they will not get enough votes. They're not going to get the threshold. They're not going to do anything. So it is a one candidate. And Dmitry Peskov already said that there is no need for other candidates. There is no need for anything for that matter. It's just let's just anoint Putin the first and we'll be done with that. I mean, wasting all this money. But they do need this kind of westernizational legitimacy, so to speak. I don't even, I mean, I do know why, but it's almost kind of ridiculous. It's almost like ridiculous with Putin announcing that he is going to thank you for asking me. I'm going to be a candidate. And then Piskov says, oh, it was so unexpected. And like, yeah, that was looked incredibly unexpected. I mean, we just could not even imagine that that would happen. There's a great expression in Russian, and suddenly in the bushes, there's a white grand piano that I'm going to play. So suddenly in the bushes, there's a white grand piano. So all of this is a sham, but that's what's so kind of this Russian split personality disorder. It's, it's a just typical schizophrenia. It just keeps jumping between Western and non-Western. It's, you know, it's a unique civilization of what? I mean, because no thought of, of Russia that it has ever had is an original thought of its philosophy. The philosophy of Russia is an unwest, which makes it a thoroughly Western country that keeps fighting with it. And so in this sense, it is predictable, but it's also predictable that they are going to use the protocol to turn it into a ritual. And the elections is part of the same thing. So all the major Russian opposition leaders are now in prison, including Alexei Navalny. And um, earlier this month, Alexei Navalny's allies announced that they have not received any news from him uh, for several days. Uh, do you think the Kremlin will try to silence the country's main opposition figure during the elections? I think so, yes. I think that, I mean, I hope that they're just silencing him, frankly. And it's once, it's like another feature, this Asiatic feature of Russian politics, because it is a torn nation. I mean, it really is an amazing thing. I mean, you would never see in any country, well, maybe Turkey, but less so because Turkey does have its own its own culture. But, you know, never seen a country being so schizophrenic about its own existence, about its own identity. So, they already silenced everything. They really have nothing to be afraid of. And yet they are, because everything that Russia does, and it's not even usual because, you, you know, every country fights its enemies, every country plays dirty with those that they disagree. It's the extent to which Russia does it. I mean, it's really that Orwellian. I mean, it's on the level of fiction because no normal country does this kind of thing because it's just absurd. But yes, I think they will. And I think that's why now they're basically going after everybody, almost everybody for things that they said in 2021, 2022, 2014, or something, something. So I would imagine that the desire to completely silence opposition is there. 
And the action around it would be that Russian, is that complete elimination. I mean, you know, Alia Karlov, one of the memorial founders, got a light sentence. He got a last time for maligning the Russian forces or whatever, something, whatever that's, these things are. So he got a fine of 150,000 rubles. And he himself said, I remember when he said, oh, it was quite decent. I was like, yeah, just wait. You know, today it's decent because it wasn't an order. And then the next order will be that it's not going to be decent. So on Thursday, there was going to be another hearing. And he was, and the prosecutor wants three years for him. I mean, I hope it's not going to happen. But I imagine that three months left, they're going to be ramping up that kind of production of enemies. Very 1937. So should we expect the anti-Western rhetoric to be at the center of Putin's campaign and in the center of his new presidential term? Well, it's also kind of interesting that Putin's rhetoric is not even anti-Western. And that's an interesting thing because it's almost pacifying is that if they were not that horrible to us, we wouldn't have been like that. We just have to respond. Because for Putin, if you listen, it takes a lot of stamina to listen to his speech, at least for me, it did, to listen to his speech of this patriarchal Congress, the, the Orthodox Congress. That was an amazing, amazing speech of pet peeves. I mean, just you know, them, ma, ma, they didn't get us and we had the ma, 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 and Russia is great and you didn't recognize the ma, ma, ma. And so I would imagine like that. So basically his message is that the West have other different leaders. We're going to be fine. We're going to be great. We're going to be friendly because we're not closing the borders. And in some ways he once again, lucky I go back to my point is that the West did a lot of job for him. Is that I don't need to close borders. Finland does it all by itself. So he doesn't even have to be a despot in a sense because the West is so eager to cancel Russia. In a sense. I mean, I, I know I'm repeating his rhetoric, but it's not untrue. I mean, the problem with Putin is that not necessarily everything that they say is untrue. It's just the messenger is wrong and therefore it becomes untrue. As George Orwell once said, all propaganda lies even if it tells the truth. So yes, I mean, it is going to be Russia's unique civilization. It's not recognized. But as long as it's recognized, we're fine. We're not anti-Western. So that's the main point. It has been the main point for quite some time. It's the leaders of the West. But we are friends of all nations. As long as Russian domination over, over its sphere of influence is being recognized, Russian role in whatever it is, historical something that or this is going to be recognized and whatnot. And in fact, I found it also interesting in later speeches because the word democracy hasn't been used because it was a curse word. It was a Navalny word. We're not going to use it. And in the last two months, suddenly democracy or democratic has been coming up. It is also the message to the Russians is that we're not undemocratic. We're just against that horrible, self-serving colonial democracies that the West have. It's the message to the Russians, but it's also the message to the world because we want a multipolar world where everybody is equal, everybody is friendly. Putin keeps winking and saying, well, that sentence may be too sharp or we are not, we don't like, like LGBT. They have the right to exist. We just don't want them to win all the tenders, all, all the competitions, which is interesting because this is also incredibly Stalin-esque. When Stalin says, that is too tough. We really have to, you know, stop looking for enemies of the people. The next thing is like, whoops, 
the enemies of the people just come out of woodworks immediately. And that's another kind of this Andropov slash Stalin security forces function is that the president appears, the Tsar appears benevolent, the Tsar appears fair. Oh, but it's all these other people who are in charge of all this. And I think we'll see more and more of this is that the repressions will increase, but Putin himself will be looking more and more above all of this little blah, 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 because he has that grand vision of the great unique civilization that he will make the world to recognize, even if by sword. That's all for this episode. We will continue informing you on the Russian presidential election in our future episodes. Stay tuned and thank you for listening to Russia on the Records.